Good morning, church. It's good to see you today. And for those of you who are online with us, we're glad that you're here as well. Um, hope that you had a great week. It's good to see some of you uh, for the first time in a little while. That's good to know. And it's good to know that you're all feeling well and, and looking chipper and, and glad that you're here with us. Um, you know where the first car was mentioned in the Bible? We just sang about it a moment ago. First car was mentioned in the book of Acts. It says that, that the believers were all together in one accord. So see, we were, we were singing biblical things. We were singing about the first car in the Bible, so that's, that's a good thing to know. Um, we, are, we are in the middle, or the beginning end, I should say, of, of our of our next five to seven years in terms of our goal structure and things we want to do. And you remember that goal pyramid, and I'm not going to show you a picture right now, but you remember second from the bottom at the base level there of that pyramid? starts with one heart and goes all the way down to 100 plus thousand dollars going out to uh, reach our world for Jesus Christ during that period of time. But right, below, right, behind, right above that is to have 10,000 gospel conversations. A gospel conversation is when you talk to somebody about Jesus Christ. Um, you may do that physically. You may do that in writing. You may do that um, through a text message, uh, however it might be, a phone message. It may be giving a simple thing out like our True Life way, our True Life dot uh, org cards. Uh, one side is our our business card, just telling people who we are and how they can find us. And secondly, on the back side, it is them. Uh, just a whole plethora of videos they can go watch and to be able to, to find out about Jesus Christ, uh, about their faith, about maybe their lack of faith, maybe ask, answer questions that they may be having. And it's as simple as giving this out and saying, hey, if you, have, if, you, if you don't have a church home or if you have spiritual questions, you can do this in your own time, uh, in your own space, and it'll answer a lot of your questions. And if you have more, just feel free to give us a call. And so that can be as, as simple as it is. Um, last month, we didn't even tell you about it till the end of the month on the 31st. And so we have... 23 gospel conversations already. You think, well, that's a long ways from 10,000. I know it is. But you realize that if we were to do that, 23 to, to, to maybe, we really need to be about 35, about 35 a week, not a month, but a week. Just 35 of these cards, 35 conversations, 35 just saying to somebody, you know, do you ever think about spiritual things? Or have you ever heard about Jesus Christ? Can I just share them with you? Simple little things like that. We will bass our $10,000, our 10,000 gospel conversations because um, just kind of the compounding nature of that, that we'll just continue to grow and grow in that. And then what will that lead to? We hope and pray for 1,000 stories. 1,000 stories of people who share their, their good news, who say, this is how I came to know Jesus as Savior. And we'll let you hear those, we hope, or in the next years over every every once in a while we're gonna have people share that story that they have and so we're looking for 1,000 stories because that means that 1,000 people have come to know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord so uh, you can find these uh, on the welcome desk just help yourself to them you know, we, we'd like you to give out at least two a week 
but you can, we, there are in bundles of five. You can give out all five. That's all right. One a day, you know, one, and then take two days off to catch your breath. Because you'd be worn out, I know. Or you're going to take two packs, and that's fine. So go ahead and use those. Use them liberally, and we're not going to be upset if you use them all up. And then we want you to just record that on your connecting card right here on the back side, on the, on the top row in the middle. Uh, just say, I had however many gospel conversations last week. So for those of you who talked to somebody last week or gave a card out last week, uh, shared good news last week, wherever it might have been, go ahead and put that number in. Put that in one of the offering boxes on your way out, uh, and we would be appreciative of that. We're not going to you know, call you up and say, why didn't you give, you know, do more? We'll just be appreciative of what you did, okay? All right. Let's uh, take a moment and let's bow in prayer as we come to God's word today. Heavenly Father, we just want to tell you how much we love you and adore you. We thank you for for your grace and your mercy in our lives. We thank you for touching our lives where, where we need to be touched by you. We thank you for those, those unexpected touches where we didn't even realize that we were yearning and, and yet you still yearned for us and you came and, you, and you, just, you just let us know your love and your grace in our lives. So Father, we thank you for that. We thank you for, for the protection that you've placed upon members of our church this past week as they've gone through through some chemotherapy, uh, some radiation, some uh, surgeries, and, and all the other things that have happened. Father, we, we just praise you for your, for your protection on them and for your healing. And so, Father, we just continue to lift them up to you. We pray for our country. We pray for our leaders. We pray for this week uh, as we're going to see more contentious things happening. Um, and, Father, we just pray that your peace would rest upon our hearts that we would sense your presence with us and your love for us and your concern for us. So, Father, we pray that you would, that you would just speak to our leaders. We pray that, that they would seek you, that they would seek your grace and your peace and your wisdom. And, Father, we're just going to give you glory for all that you're going to do. Now we pray as we open your word that you would speak to our hearts and to our lives. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So a question for you. Have you ever peeked in on somebody else's diary. Of course, you're not going to say you did that because that would be kind of rude, wouldn't it? That's kind of like one of those unwritten laws, you don't do it. But I'm going to give you a grace, a dispensation of grace here for just a moment. I'm going to let all of us peek in on the diary. Let's peek in on the diary of a Bible. December 25th. They're off to a Christmas party. I remember when he used to read Luke 2 every Christmas Eve to his family. Gave them all such joy. March 15th. Spring. I just cleaned the house. He picked me up, but only to wipe away the dust. He's pretty busy thinking about how he's going to afford another child. If he only knew, I have the perfect words for him. March 20th. I got packed into a suitcase for some reason and never got taken out. Just tucked away in the pocket. You know, the one with the net. April 14th. His father is sick and they're off to the hospital. Romans 8 could give him perspective. It could give the family hope. John 3 would be great for him to share with his dad, but... 
they left me here. June 8th, summer. The kids are out of school and having fun. They never pick me up though, probably because he doesn't anymore. He watched them play through the window, but he was sad about something. There's so much in my Psalms for him to read. August 19th, his father passed away and we're going to the funeral. I thought for sure I'd get open today, but no. Just carried along, but never opened. I wanted to help so much. October 12th. Still haven't been picked up since the funeral, and he and his wife are pretty distant from each other right now. The family is suffering. The wind did blow my pages open right in front of him, but he just glanced down and walked away. November 28th. The whole family is visiting. Everyone's sitting around the table. Somebody asked what happens after someone dies and they all had opinions. Nobody answered with any authority. Hopelessness filled the room. They talked about something else at that point. December 25th again. There's a Christmas party tonight and he walked right by me. Luke 2 would be such a great place to start. Anywhere would be a great place to start. I hope and pray that's not your Bible. However, the Bible continues to be, is, has been, and continues to be the best-selling book in the world, especially in the United States. And it continues to be one of the least read books in the world in the United States. That's why we're spending these next two months, February and March, in eight weeks, reading through the New Testament together. For those of you who don't think this is going to be beneficial to you, I hope that you will give it a chance because it can change and will change your life. But it cannot do that if you don't pick it up and read it, if you don't engage with it. You don't have to be in a small group to be able to do that, but it will give you the impetus to continue. It will give you the, 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 the relationships that you are craving I know being locked up and being apart from each other is frustrating as all get out. And we want to scream. And I used to want to pull my hair out until I realized I don't have enough to do that anymore. But I can't change, and you can't change, the pandemic that we live in. Only God can do that. But God's not through, and God is not limited to just pandemic times. All you got to do is look at history. Nothing stops God from working. Nothing stops God from working. What he says he'll do, he does. He has the power to do whatever he says he's going to do. And so we need you. You need to be in God's word, and you need to be in fellowship with one another. I know we can't come and sit in the fellowship hall and in small classrooms around our building, but we can over the Internet being each other's living rooms and talk to one another and get to know each other and share prayer requests with each other and just laugh with each other and then explain to each other how the word of God is impacting our lives. And so we're doing that. And to help along the way, uh, I told you I'm going to be preaching a sermons beginning today. And, and I'm calling this, this series of sermons uh, Messiah because 
that is the name of our New Testament. That's the name that it, this, this series is given, is Messiah. This is the entire New Testament we're going to be going through, not in the way that it's normally listed in our Bible. In fact, we're starting with the Gospel of Luke this week. So if those of you who have begun to read this week, since you had your first class, um, your, first, your small group, uh, we, are, we are reading through uh, the Gospel of Luke uh, in this one week. If you haven't started today, in fact, some of you don't even have your first meeting until today, and you don't need to start reading until, like, tomorrow. You read five days a week, about 10 pages to 12 pages a day, and, and then take two days off, and um, then go to your small group, and then share with one another. Do life with each other online, and you will be blessed. And so... Um, Today, we start Messiah, calling it immersing our lives in God's word. And every Sunday for eight weeks here, I'm going to be sharing uh, a sermon from the passage, uh, the overall passage that you're reading for that week. So that means that today, um, I got to choose, with God's help, one passage of scripture. One passage of scripture from the Gospel of Luke. Next week, um, we're not going to be in Acts uh, right away, and, and uh, we are going to be in Acts, but we're not going to, we're going to be besides in Acts some other passages of Scripture. We're also going to be in, in First and Second Thessalonians, and so next week I'm going to be sharing from First Thessalonians with you, and I'll be doing that all throughout for these eight weeks, and also that will bring us right up until the Sunday before Easter, on so on, on, um, on, on, uh, on Good Friday, uh, Good Friday, on Palm Sunday, will be our last Sunday together with this, and then we'll be moving on. Now, in your ministry, in your ministry guide, you have our sermon notes. I want you to look at them real quickly because there's something different on there that I've never given to you before. Do you know what that is? A page number and a paragraph number. Because in you, if you are reading from this Bible... There are no chapter numbers. There are no verse numbers. There are only pages, and each page has paragraphs on it. So the only way you'll know where I'm at uh, is to be able to look at that. So not everybody has one of these, and you don't have to bring this with you, but I'm going to be preaching from the New Living Translation, which is this Bible. And so this is the one we're going to be using for these next eight weeks. So, so if you don't have a New Living Translation, I still we're going to put the verses, for the most part, either in, the, in our notes or on the screen, and you'll be able to follow along that way. If you want to bring this one, that's fine. And uh, if you want to try to translate, and, you know, like you normally do with, from, from New International Version, which is my primary text for preaching, or whether it's, you know, whatever it is, New King James Version or whatever you may have, um, you, you're fine to do that as well. So today, we're in the Gospel of Luke, and we're on in chapter 4, verses 14 to 21, and that means we're on page 13, paragraphs 1 through 4, and that's where we're going to be today. And so, as we look at this, um, uh, this is what I'm calling a crash course in what Jesus wants to do for you today. A crash course in what Jesus wants to do for you today. In fact, every sermon I've titled a crash course on. Okay, it's a crash course on something because we're looking at the entire New Testament in eight, chap in eight passages, in eight, in eight sermons. 
And obviously, I can't give you everything that I want to say and everything that the New Testament tells us. So they're all just kind of crash courses. I would talk about it. I almost named this, ser- this series a crash course, but since we're already talking about Messiah and immersing ourselves, I went ahead and used that as my, sermon t- as my series title. But every, every sermon is going to begin with a crash course in, okay? So if you're saving your notes, um, you're going to have to look at the end of them or the date to know which order to put them in at some point or another. But for today, a crash course in what Jesus wants to do for you. Because when we came to the Gospel of Luke, the first passage that we're reading uh, starts to talk about the birth of Jesus, doesn't it? And so in the very beginning of Luke, we see the birth of Jesus and that, that, that miraculous event of this virgin birth and how spectacular that was. And we, we read about what's happening in Jesus' life. And then by the time you get to Luke chapter 2, verse 40, it says that, that, he, was, that, he, was, that he was beginning to grow in stature and wisdom, uh, you know, in, 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 the, in the presence of, of both God and men. And, and that was a unique thing. And then pretty soon, we, all of a sudden, we see him uh, being baptized by John the Baptist. And we see uh, God, you know, just kind of miraculously working in his life. But immediately what happens, God takes him out into the wilderness. The Holy Spirit leads him out there. And he spends 40 days fasting. You remember those days from earlier in the fall? And some of you fasted for a couple of three weeks and you thought you were going to die. But I didn't do any funerals for people who died of fasting. And so that was a good thing. And, and then Jesus you know, has this, this, this massive temptation time with Satan and he defeats him by quoting what? By quoting God's word. He said, this is what I stand on. And I can trust God's word. And so... He defeated Satan with God's word. And then coming out of that, we find ourselves in chapter 4. And in chapter 4, it begins by saying, and Jesus is starting to go around. He's, he's moved back into the region of Galilee, and, and he starts to, to teach. It says that he was a rabbi. A rabbi was a teacher. And so he would go to synagogue after synagogue, and on Saturdays when they would come to the synagogue, uh, they, he would go in and he would teach, and he, was, and he was doing miracles. He was ministering to people. And then um, some interesting things begin to happen in his life. In verse 14 of Luke chapter 4, it says that reports about him spread quickly through the whole region. Hey, you heard this guy named Jesus. Have you heard what he's doing? Have you heard the miracles that he's performing? Have you heard him teaching? And so all these reports are going around, and everybody's thinking, oh, you know, what's going on? We'd like to find this guy. We want to hear him. We want to know what he's doing. And so they're starting to do that. And, and then it says that, that one Sunday, and one Sabbath, rather, he attended a particular synagogue. He attended the synagogue in Nazareth. And since he was, that was where? That was his hometown, wasn't it? Now, for eight months or so, he has been everywhere around, but he has not been in his own hometown. But now he walks into his hometown, 
walks into the, to the synagogue, and so because he's a rabbi, they give him that preference. They say, we want you to teach, and, and so he begins to do that, and, and he's willing to do that. And as was the custom, he's called up to the front to do that. Now, now what that means is that, that they were going through their worship. Now, their worship in the synagogue really was not that different than our worship here. 2,000 years later, worship is worship. Hasn't changed a lot. In fact, what did they do? They came together and they, sometimes they would, they would quote creeds because everybody didn't own a Bible. I mean, the Bibles were scrolls. And if they had one set of scrolls for the synagogue, that was great. Nobody owned scrolls and had them home. They didn't have a pocket scroll. They, they kept in their glove compartment of their chariot. Most of them didn't even have a chariot, so they couldn't do that. So, so they, they, had, they came to the synagogue and they would, they would recite things from memory. Oh, they had to memorize stuff. Aren't you glad you didn't live then, huh? And, um, and then somebody would read. They would read a passage from the, from the, from the law and a, praf, a, a passage from the prophets. They didn't read anything from the New Testament. You can figure that one out, maybe, why they didn't do that. But they would read two passages of Scripture. That meant from, from they would read something from Genesis through, through Deuteronomy, and then they would go to the prophets and they would read. And then somebody would, would begin to preach on that. They would exhortate that. They would, there, were, there was exhortation from that, usually from one or both passages that had been read that day. And they would sing, and they would pray. Not much different than we do. In fact, this morning, what have we done? We've prayed, we, we were singing, we were praising God that way, uh, we were reading an Old Testament passage, we were reading a New Testament passage, and now I'm preaching. We're doing the same things, aren't we? has not really changed. So they give Jesus the scrolls, and that passage that day was already picked out because um, like churches that use the lectionary today, usually the passages were prescribed for each time they came, each week, ahead of time. That way they covered the gamut of the things that the, that the Old Testament was talking about, that the, that the law was talking about, and that the prophets were talking about. And so... The passage happened to be in Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. At least that's the part that Jesus is going to read. And so the interesting thing is, is that almost verbatim, just a little bit different, um, Jesus quotes in Luke chapter 4, or 4 what, is, what, what Isaiah spoke and wrote in, in Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. And this is what he reads. As he reads, and, and you can follow along in your notes there if you want to, uh, or you can follow on the screen. But it says in verses 18 and 19, Jesus reads this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. Now, I want you to know 
what you just heard was the beginning of the first sermon that we have recorded of Jesus preaching. Now, we know he's already been teaching in synagogues, but this is the first one we have record of. And where is he doing it? We have the first recorded sermon that we have record of at his home church. Now, for every pastor, there is that moment that you go back to your home church and you preach for the first time. For me, it was, the, the, I believe, the first Sunday of July of 1991. And I went down to First Baptist, Barb and I went down to, from where we were living up in Central Valley down to, to San Diego uh, in view of a call from, uh, from Carlton Hill Southern Baptist Church. That means that they were looking at me saying, we, we think that maybe God wants you to be our pastor, and they wanted to hear me preach. This was before the internet, you know, the things we can do today. And so, you know, they needed to hear me, and so we came down. It happened to be our home. This is my home church. This is where I grew up. And, and it's where Barb and I were married. And, and so it was, a, it was a special place, but I'd never preached there. Um, I had, but the interesting thing is, I had been preaching for well over 10 years at that point. I'd been serving in full-time ministry for almost about 18 years at that point. But I got to go back and preach in my home church. And that's, that's kind of an exciting thing. That's kind of an interesting thing. Um, but you're not sure how they're going to take you because I was preaching to people who watched me in the nursery. And I don't know what happened in there, and I don't, you know, I don't know what kind of kid I was in those days. And so, you know, you, you're, you're dealing, and I, I was, you know, preaching to people who were there when I was baptized, and, and who taught me all the way through high school, and in my first year of college, and, and so it was just kind of this weird thing. And so Jesus is, is back home now, and he's sharing, and so he reads this passage of Scripture, and then, um, then what happens? It says this, it says that he that he that he simply that he that he read this passage and he rolled up the scroll and he handed it to the attendant. So he read this passage of scripture, verses what we have is verses sixteen through eighteen, and then or eighteen rather and nineteen, and then he hands it off to the attendant. And you know what he does? He walks over, and he sits down. So that's kind of weird. I thought he was going to preach. He was. But it was the custom that the rabbi who was going to preach, after they read, sat down to teach and preach. Now, I realize that in today's church, it's a little bit weird for the pastor to sit down. But it is not unbiblical. It is neither biblical nor unbiblical. Because it doesn't tell us anywhere the posture that the pastor should have when he preaches, or the teacher should have when they teach. So Jesus sat down. And then what does it say? It says in verse 20, all eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently. Wonder what he's going to say. 
We've heard all these wonderful stories about what he's been doing. What's he going to say? Come on, Jesus, talk. And he just let that, that climactic moment build just a little bit. And then this is how he begins his sermon, based on those, those two verses. He said in verse 21, The scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day. What? Where? What are you talking about, Jesus? We've been reading this passage of Scripture on a regular basis for, for a thousand years, almost. For hundreds of years. What do you mean that it's been fulfilled this very day? And then he begins a sermon, and this is his sermon. The first part, this is the introduction of the sermon. We're only going to look at the introduction. We're not going to look at the rest of it today, but we're just going to look at this part. And you know what this part tells us? It tells us that Jesus is saying, essentially, I'm the prophet that Isaiah was talking about. I'm your guy, if you will. He's saying, you have to understand, God promised some, that he was going to send somebody to preach this sermon. That was his plan. He told Isaiah that was going to happen. And now I'm here and I've preached it. Today it has been fulfilled. Today you see God doing what he said he was going to do. That you never thought he could do. You didn't think it could happen in our situation. You didn't think it could happen when, when Israel is a vassal of Rome, when Israel does not have any freedom, when Roman soldiers walk around and just destroy people's lives, when we have a religious system that is beating down people in their own society and telling those people they don't matter. He said, you didn't think God could work, but God's working and today is the day. This is the day that I'm going to do what I said that I can do. And so um, he says, these words that Isaiah wrote hundreds of years ago are specifically about me, they're about my ministry, and they're about what I came to do. And so I want you to understand that this is an important passage of Scripture because it tells us what Jesus came to do, specifically for us. What was his agenda? What were his priorities? What were his goals when he came? When he starts this public ministry, and now he's almost a third of the way through it. He's about at least a quarter of the way through it at this point. So what's he about? What does he desire to do? That's what he's going to share with us. And, and he shares five things, five ministry priorities, if you will, that he came to accomplish. In three and a half years, these were the things that he wanted to do. That's why I chose today's passage. Because at the beginning of our eight weeks in the New Testament, we need to know why Jesus came and what he came to do. If he only came to be born of a virgin in a, in a, and be placed in a manger, and we only know the Christmas story, that's really cool, but it gets us nowhere. It doesn't bring us to the point of salvation, that's for sure. That doesn't even bring us to a relationship with the God of this universe, except to say, wow, you're pretty, you're pretty special, God. You could do something that nobody else could do. We need some of the rest of the story. And so let's begin 
as we go through the rest of the New Testament with understanding why Jesus came and what he planned on doing. What were his ministry priorities? And so today, five things Jesus came to do for you. That's what we're going to look at. The five things Jesus came to do for you. And for all of us, these were the reasons that he was here. And the first one is this. Jesus came to meet your deepest needs. As he quotes from Isaiah, and he says, this is why I'm here. I am here because I want to meet the deepest needs that you have in your life. We all have those deepest needs, but he said, this is what I want to do. And so he begins again by saying in verse 18, the Lord has anointed me to do what? To bring good news. Now that, that term good news means the gospel. The gospel is good news. It is about Jesus Christ and it's about what he's going to do in our lives. But he says very specifically to bring good news, the gospel, if you will, to the poor. To the poor. He's not, he, he's talking about obviously, you know, material poverty, if you will. Um, and, and to be sure, that's, that was what he was talking about, but it's not all he was talking about. He's also referring to spiritual poverty. Um, uh, but he says this, he says in Matthew 5, 3, for example, starting in another sermon that he preached, the Sermon on the Mount, he said in the Beatitudes, God blesses those who are poor and realize that their need, the, their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Now in the first century in Palestine, um, in Jesus' day, poverty was, it was common and it was brutal. I mean, it was just hard. There was no such thing as a, as, a, as a living wage, for the most part, for people. There was no minimum wage. Most people had to work from sunup to sundown to barely make it through that day. And then they had to do it all again the next day. And so, as long as there was sunlight, for the most part, they worked in order to be able to survive. And, and, and even then, they barely, they barely were able to do that. Um, it, was just, it, was, it, was, it was just a really hard time. You know, we don't, for the most part, understand what that kind of poverty is. Not in our situations. But there are some people who have to work that hard still today. There is that kind of poverty still in places in our world today. And God sees that, and God's concerned about that, and God says that I sent my son to deal with that, to, to help you in those periods of time. And the poor in that society of Jesus' day, like in ours, the poor are always the outcasts of society, it seems. That's not unusual either. They're the ones who have the hardest time. And in fact, in Jesus' day, the outcast of society, the poor, um, were, were often overlooked. They were the, the unimportant people, if you will. They were the, they were the people who were hungry. They were the people that were overworked. Uh, they were the weak. They were the helpless. But Jesus came to say, you matter to God, if that's you. That you matter to God. 
that no matter how poor you are, no matter how much of an outcast you may see yourself or that everybody else around you sees you, you matter to God. And so Jesus said, I came to proclaim good news to the poor, but not just to the people who were materially poor. He was referring to those whose lives were empty and destitute in a number of ways, and we all fit in that definition. We are all destitute in one way or another. We have been, or we are right now, or we will be someday. During the course of my ministry, God has, has placed me in, in, in a few different communities, and some of them were the poorest of the poor people that were around. When we were in South Modesto, I think that I went to some of the, of the houses uh, to, to visit people, and I thought, I don't know how somebody could live in this place. I mean, they were barely standing. I, I went to one house where you could see through the walls, through the gaps in the walls. It was a stick house that was barely standing together. It had a little bit of siding on the outside. There was nothing on the inside. There was no, there was no insulation. There was no sheetrock. There was nothing. And you could just see sunlight coming through. And I'm sure that meant you felt a lot of cold air coming through and you saw a lot of rain coming through. We saw people who were barely surviving. Then we went to San Diego to, the first, to, to Carlton Hill Southern Baptist Church. And then 19 years later, God took us back just a little bit north from South Modesto to North Stockton, about 35 miles away. And there we had this dichotomy. There we had a group of people who lived on one side of the church, on the west side of our church, on the street that our church was on, between our church and, and, and Highway 99, a distance of about three-quarters of a mile, if that far. We saw people who were living in houses that cost well under $100,000. You probably could have picked up two of them for $100,000. And then starting exactly on the, north, on the east side of us, three quarters of a mile of really destitute people, and then our church, and then immediately on the house on the next side of us and going on for several miles were multi-million dollar mansions. The affluent of the affluent. Professional athletes lived in there and per, and, and people that were lawyers and doctors and, and these, these huge houses. There are houses that look like the front of the Beverly Hillbillies mansion. Literally. And you know what I found? I found that it didn't matter which side of the church they lived on, they all had poverty needs. They were all missing something. They were all destitute in some area. Sometimes it was material, but many times it was spiritual. It was emotional. It was, it was, it was types of things that just, that just tear us apart. And I think Jesus wanted to say that day two things. He said, number one, I want you to understand that I am here for the purpose of helping you to endure the period of, this period of poverty in your life, whether it is financial or whether it is emotional or spiritual, whatever it may be. I will give you the, I, will, I want you 
to be able to endure, and I will give you the strength to endure. Because he doesn't always just take that away right away, does he? There are some people who will always live in poverty for their entire lives, from the moment they were born until the moment they die. And God says, I understand that, and I will give you strength to endure that. But he also says, I not only will give you the strength to endure, I will give you the power to overcome. And so there are ways that we overcome. Sometimes we overcome by getting a better job, or sometimes we overcome by, by getting involved in, in ministry that we didn't think we could do. Sometimes we overcome by, by seeing God meet that spiritual need, that emotional need that I have, but he gives us the power to overcome. So he said, I came to proclaim good news to the poor. Secondly, not only did he come to meet your deepest needs, secondly, he came to set you free from whatever has a hold of you. (laughs) Something has a hold of you. It either has had, it has now, or it will have a hold of you. Something has got a hold of you. Jesus said it this way in verse 18, I came to proclaim that captives will be released. I came to proclaim that captives will be released. Now, the, international, the New International Version, and I'm going to give you just kind of that, that, that translation as well today. To pro, he said to proclaim freedom to the prisoners. And just like everyone struggles with poverty in some area of their lives, it is true that everyone that I know and every person on the face of the earth also has been captive to something. Now, it might be some things like food, where we just can't stop eating. Or it could be something like, like illicit sex. It could be something like, like alcohol. Or it could be gambling. All of those are things that take us captive, that make us prisoners, that, that have a hold of us. Now, things like, like food, sex, alcohol, and gambling are things that just kind of, they're, they're easy to diagnose and to see because they just kind of grab a hold of us real fast, don't they? And, and they do their damage and everybody sees what that damage is eventually, don't they? And so they're hard to, they're hard to hide because they become very public. And so if you struggle with alcohol, you struggle with illicit sex or whatever it might be, um, you, just, you can't hide that forever. It comes out. But there are other things that are more subtle that also have a hold of us, that don't come to the forefront quite as easily to tell. So what comes to the forefront that, is this, that, we, might be, that we might be imprisoned by that, that, that will be harder to detect? Uh, things like anger, uh, maybe guilt, maybe it is fear, maybe it's resentment, maybe it's depression in our lives, uh, maybe it's jealousy, maybe it's ambition, maybe it's wanting revenge. Those things can get a hold of us. You have this, this, this need for revenge to somebody that you perceive has harmed you or, you're, or, you're, or you feel guilty about a sin and you don't know what to do about it and it just, it just kind of lingers there under the surface of your life and you, and you just live with it every day. You wake up with it, you live with it during the day and you go to bed with it and hopefully you can go to sleep but if you can't, you just deal with it all night long and then you do it all again tomorrow anyway. 
Those things also have a hold of us. And things that grab a hold of you and they shackle your hands and your feet. And and as much as you try to manage the rage or the lust or or whatever it may be in your life, uh, you you just can't. And so it holds you as a prisoner it makes you a captive Uh, you don't control it it controls you and Jesus said I came to set you free from whatever it is that has that hold on you that will not set you free and and every person in this room has been in that situation or is in that right now and just listening to me you've already identified one or two of those you don't need to identify them for the person sitting next to you. They already know what theirs are. God is revealing them to you. And you're saying, but God, I can't get rid of these. I've been dealing with them for years. They've been a part of my entire adult life, maybe even longer than that, maybe even when I was a teenager, or things that happened in my childhood, and I'm still dealing with the guilt of it or the anguish of it. And I want revenge, and I can't get it. The person that did this to me has been dead for 20 years. And I'm still wanting revenge. Jesus says, I know. That's why I came. I came so that captives will be released. And then he said this. He said in John chapter 8, verse 36, So if the Son sets you free, you are truly free. He said, I didn't just come to give you a pep talk. He said, I came to, let those, to help you let those things go, to make them let go of you so that they won't have that hold on you any longer. And you won't spend your nights tossing and turning about the anguish that they're causing in your life. And so he said, I came that you might have freedom. Now I want you to imagine, if you will, imagine what it would be like to be set free. To know that the guilt is finally gone for your past. To know that that, that your past no longer haunts you every day and every night. To know that your sins and mistakes no longer torment you and that the shame no longer engulfs you. What would life be like with those things gone? Imagine what that would be like. Imagine if your anger no longer has control over you. When you've been able to set that aside and say, I don't need to, be the, I don't need to have this anger in me any longer. And, and so every time that something doesn't go your way, you don't explode immediately in this torrent of profanity that just pours out of your mouth. To say that's not me anymore. Or imagine what it'd be like to, to be able to say, you know, inappropriate sexual thoughts no longer hold me captive. To be able to see an advertisement or, or to see something uh, in print and to say, I don't need to look at that anymore. I don't, that's not part of who I am anymore. I can, just, I can say no to that. I don't have to take another peek. That's what Jesus came to do. He said, I came to set you free, to set that captive free, and that captive is for you, to proclaim 
captives will be released. So whatever has a hold of you, Jesus is able to set you free, and he wants to meet your deepest needs. And then thirdly, he says, he came to give you a new outlook on life. Came to give you a new outlook on life. Jesus said in verse 18, he, has set, he, he, he sent me to proclaim that the blind will see. That the blind will see a new outlook on life, to be able to see life through God's eyes, to be able to see life through faith. But as with poverty, he's speaking literally as well as figuratively here. Now, Jesus, is, has, he, in, in the New Testament, he heals in the, in the Gospels. He does heal people who are blind, doesn't he? Does he heal every person who's blind? No, but he heals some people who are blind. So he had the ability to heal people who are physically blind, and he does that. But I think he's talking about another kind of blindness as well, and that is a blindness to the truth. A blindness to God's truth, if you will. A blindness to spiritual truth that we just are not able to see on our own. And that applies to all of us. Because not everybody in here needs to be physically healed because you can wash your glasses like Pastor Ken, and you, and you don't need that physical healing from blindness. You just need some soap and water and a rag. But we all need our spiritual blindness to be healed, don't we? We need to have that taken away. And that, so it applies to all of us. So there are times when our fear and, and maybe our prejudice and our lack of faith and our sin prevents us from seeing God's truth in any situation. Where we look at it, we say, you know, God, I don't understand. I, think I got this problem where I see this problem and, and it's insurmountable. You ever, see a, you ever have a problem in your life when you just say, I don't know what to do, it's just insurmountable. It's bigger than I am. I don't know how to fix this and I don't think it can ever be fixed. You know what happens when you say that? When you say this problem is so big, it can never be fixed. It tells a little bit about you and your lack of faith, but it tells everything about how you see God. Because when you say, God, this problem is bigger than me and it will never be fixed, I am telling God, God, you can't fix this. You're not strong enough. You're not big enough. You don't have enough power. You could create the whole universe by just speaking it together, but you can't fix this problem in my life. And God says, I can, but right now I probably won't. Because you don't believe I can do it. You don't see your problem through who I am. You see it according to who you are. So God says, I want you to see me. I want you to see my power and my strength. I want you to see spiritual truth through who I am, not through, who you're, not through your eyes of unbelief and your lack of faith because of that. God says, I want you to see things as I tell you they are. To see them through my word to see them through my power and he said when you do you will see me working in ways you never dream possible and in the process he says I can give you a new outlook 
I can, you can see things that will just be amazing. So Jesus says, I, proclaim, I came to proclaim that the blind would see. He says, I know right now you, look like you're, you feel like you're looking through darkness, but if you put your faith in me and you'll believe my word to you, he said, I will let you see things in a different light. He said, I will let you begin to see things um, through, uh, I will, I, you, can, you can live with spiritual insight. You'll be able to live with, with spiritual vision. You'll be able to live with spiritual perspective. You cannot do that until Jesus sets you free. When he gives you that freedom from spiritual blindness. And he said, that's what I came to do. And then number four, Jesus says he came because he wants you to feel good. He wants you to feel good. And I know right now some of you are saying, what? I don't want touchy-feely kind of faith. What are you talking about, Pastor? I think you're unspiritual now. Don't send me emails and write me. Just hang with me here for a minute. Because surprisingly, when you read through God's Word... When you go through the entire New Testament in these next eight weeks, when we go through the beginning, when we go through Genesis, through, through Deuteronomy, later on this year, and as we go through the rest of the Old Testament over the next two years, several times God's going to be talking about, in those words, I want you to feel good. I want you to feel good. It is not unbiblical, it is not unscriptural, and it's not touchy-feely, you know, kind of new age kind of, you know, movement type of mentality. It is, it is what God wants. He wants us to be able uh, to feel good. And, um, and so let's, let's look at what he says. In verse 18, he says that God sent him to proclaim that the oppressed will be set free. In the King James Version, that's translated to set at liberty them that are bruised. Oppressed to be set free, them that are bruised to be at liberty. So let me ask you, have you ever been bruised? And I don't mean you fell down and you, and you have an owie on your elbow. Have you ever been bruised emotionally or spiritually? Been bruised financially? You've been bruised by life? Have you ever had life get the best of you? Have you ever seemed to just be beat up mercilessly? That, that life just kind of picks you up and throws you down and then stomps on you a little bit? If you haven't yet, you will be at some point. That's the nature of our enemy. Our enemy wants to destroy you. And you will be bruised by life. But no matter how fragile you are, Jesus understands that. He cares about these emotional bruises that you bear. He cares about the, the, uh, about the hurts that you've endured. And he came to lift you up out of it. The book of Isaiah says in Isaiah 42.3, He will not crush the weakest reed or put out a flickering candle. You know what that verse means? It says, God 
is not going to dump on you when you're already bruised to start with, when you've already been beaten up anyway. His desire is not to snuff you out. His desire is to lift you up out of that, that distress that you're in, out of that pain and anguish that you're in, that emotional pain and that, and that uh, you know, intellectual pain that you may have right now, uh, trying to figure all these things out. Um, and so no matter how fragile you are, no matter how vulnerable you are right now, um, Jesus is ready to protect you. That's why he said in Matthew chapter 11, verses 29 to 30, he said, take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy to bear and the burden I give you is light. We sing about, today we sang about laying our burdens down. Well, we can only lay them down when we lay them down at Jesus' feet and he says, I'll pick them up and I'll get rid of them for you. All those things that are beating you down, he said, you bring those to my feet. You lay them down, and I will give you rest that you need for your soul. I want you to understand, if you're bruised and beaten and downtrodden, Jesus wants to release you from that oppression, and he wants to build you up emotionally. Now, I know, I know we don't live by our feelings, because feelings are tricky. So we have to live by faith, and we do. But God wants your feelings to come in line with your faith. He wants you to feel good. Jesus said, I want you to be full of joy. I want you to experience abundance of my spiritual life that I want to give you. I want you to know peace. I want you to, to have hope. I, I don't want you to feel oppressed. That's not his desire for you. He said, I have something so much better for you. He said, I said, I want you to feel blessed. I want you to enjoy life. He says, I want you to be emotionally strong. I want you to feel good. And that's a promise that he gives to us. That's why he came. It is not wrong for us to say, okay, God, I need your touch in this part of my life. I have been bruised. I need to have that lifted up. I don't want to deal with that anymore. And then finally, number five, Jesus said he came because he wants you to experience God's favor. He wants you to experience God's favor. In verse 19, he said he came to proclaim the time of the Lord's favor has come. Unfortunately, some people, and maybe people in this room or people who are watching us online right now, when you think about God, if you're honest, your first thoughts may be that God's angry. That there's this angry God out there that we have to deal with. Or we don't want to deal with, but we don't know how to get away from him. Maybe you look at him and you say, he's vindictive. He's harsh and he's demanding. And you think, you think that, that you're probably nothing but one big disappointment to him. That when he sees you, all he sees is the disappointment that he has with you. When you see God, you don't see him as, as a God of unconditional love. You see him as a God, rather, 
who's a God of disapproval. But I want you to know, if that's who you see God as, you've missed the picture. Because God is a God of unconditional love. He is a God of approval. He is a God of a second chance. He is a God of grace. He is a God of mercy. He gives us what we don't deserve, and he doesn't give us what we do deserve. Grace and mercy. That's his favor. We don't deserve his grace. We don't deserve his mercy. But he gives it to us anyway. We don't deserve his love, but he gives it to us unconditionally. That's his favor. And I want you to understand that God is, that's, that's the God of the Bible. That is the God that we can serve. That is the God who loves us. Now, some of you, maybe when you were growing up, had an adult in your life who would occasionally say to you when they caught you being mischievous, I don't think Jesus is smiling right now. I want to ask you to raise your hand if you were one of those. But you know, as you, if you say that to your kids, you say that to your grandkids, you're, you're teaching them that you've got a God who disapproves of everything. You've got a God of disapproval. Now, it may be true that he's not smiling because he's not happy with what you're doing at that moment. And you're hurting his heart, but he's not disapproving. He says, I want you to come to me and repent. And he said, I'll give you freedom. I'll give you my favor. I'll give you that second chance that you need. Remember John three seventeen. The verse right after God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Then what does he say? Jesus says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus didn't come to condemn you. He came to save you, to pour out his favor on you, to pour out his unconditional love, to pour out his approval, to pour out grace and mercy in your life. I want you to know you can experience that today, right now. You can experience that love that God has for you right now. It simply begins by saying, God, you know what? I want to receive your favor. I do. God, I want to receive your blessings in my life. God, I really want to receive your mercy I want what I don't deserve from you right now. And so right now, God, I know I don't deserve it, but I accept it. I just accept it from you. And he says, I'll give it to you. Let's pray together. Father, as we think about your love and your acceptance in our lives, God, we thank you for the grace and the mercy that only you can give. There are people in this room right now who need to, they need to be set free from bondage, from poverty, from, from the slavery of, of evil thoughts and, and ways of life, from, from thinking 
from a human standpoint rather than from your word and from a spiritual standpoint. God, we just, we just need your favor. So, Father, thank you for that promise that you give to us. Pray, Father, that right now if there's one here or someone listening in their living room who needs to trust Jesus to be their Savior and Lord, that they would say, that's what I want, God. Don't deserve it, but I believe you'll give it to me. Would you forgive my sins? Would you give me eternal life? And your promise is you will, in your favor, give them that eternal life. So, Father, thank you that you gave to us a Savior who meets our deepest needs in every aspect of who we are. We pray these things in the name of that Savior, Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. If God's speaking to you and you need to come down and pray with somebody, you maybe just need to come down and pray, you need to speak to somebody about salvation or baptism or, or membership in our church, whatever it may be, you come as we sing.